0: Hello and welcome to the Transporter Lock Podcast, your weekly Star Trek Discovery review show. This is Season 1, Episode 8, Siwis Pacham Parabellum, which is Latin for, if you want peace, prepare for war. Very wise, and words of wisdom are also flowing from the mouth of my co-host, Sabriel Maston. Hello, Sabriel.
1: Hi, Ken. I was wondering if you were forgetting about me.
0: No, Sabriel, <laughs> you are unforgettable. As hard as I try, you are unforgettable.
1: <laughs> and you did pretty well reading that Latin as well.
0: We had some pronunciation help from your friend. Why don't you tell us about her?
1: So yeah, I'm in California still after my weekend at BlizzCon. I am hanging out at my friend Char's place who used to host a podcast called To the Journey, a Star Trek Voyager podcast. And now she does one with her co-host from that show, Tristan Riddell, uh, called Punch It so check that out if you like general geek culture it was more of a Trek leaning
0: so this is not another Star Trek Discovery podcast that would be our competition is it
1: (laughs) no no no
0: oh that's good I'm glad that we can all coexist infinite diversity (laughs) and infinite combinations
1: (laughs) so long as you listen to us first
0: that's right priorities I was also traveling this weekend. I was in New York City, and I hosted a panel at GamerX, which is a LGBT video game convention that you and I have both been to.
1: Yes, I highly suggest going to GamerX if you can make it.
0: Yes, it was a great time. The audio from my panel should be an episode of my other podcast, Polygamer, where I interview marginalized voices in the gaming industry. That can be found at polygamer.net. Check that out, too, after you listen to this podcast. But enough about other shows, let's get into Star Trek Discovery. As we said, this is Season 1, Episode 8, which is the penultimate episode of the fall season of Star Trek Discovery.
1: Yes, and I am kind of grateful that we got one more episode, but we'll talk about that later. Should we do what we did in the previous episode and talk about Klingons separately from the Starfleet side of things?
0: I think that makes sense. This show really had two plot lines, and they don't intersect except minorly at the very beginning and very end. So rather than jumping back and forth, it makes sense, I think, to stick to one track and then switch to the other. I do want to briefly say, though, two things. Uh, One, this was probably my least favorite episode of Discovery to date.
1: Same here. We, We were both talking just before the show. It sounds like we have a similar opinion of that, But, and I think this is one you may definitely need to... Have the second one handy right away if, if you can help it. Obviously, we can't because uh, it's, we're recording this uh, just after it aired. But uh, watch them together, I think, if you have the ability to. Yeah, so
0: this is part one of a two-parter. And unlike the two-parter that began the entire series, this one is not airing back-to-back. So you actually do need to wait a week to find out what happens in Season 1, Episode 9. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I want to mention and is that this episode did something just like last week's, which was it starts off with a recap, you know, last time on Star Trek Discovery, blah, 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 which is not new to this show, but then it goes right into the opening sequence. There's no original content, no intro or cold no teaser. opening. No Right, yeah. there's no teaser. And I didn't realize, when that happened last week, I thought, gee, that's unusual. I didn't find out until later that that is the first episode of Star Trek to not have a teaser since Encounter at Farpoint. Wow. And now this week's episode is the first Star Trek to open without a teaser since last week. (laughs)
1: Wow, they just cut that uh, record in (laughs) to nothing.
0: I know, 30 years, one week, same thing. (laughs) My goodness. I miss the teaser. I like especially how long Discovery teasers were. Like They could be seven minutes long before you get to the title sequence.
1: Hey, we're doing things different this time around.
0: I guess they're just making it up as they go, flying by the seat of their pants. <laughs> Speaking of which, let's fly into this week's episode. As you said, we're going to split it between the humans and the Klingons, or at least Starfleet and the Klingons. We'll start with the Klingons. Why don't you get that ball rolling, Bree?
1: We begin the Klingon scenes. Uh, okay, well, hold on. There's a little space battle. We're going to skip that because it was not involved the ship, the sarcophagus ship, the ship of the dead.
0: Yeah, we'll come back to that.
1: Right. And we start with Lorel beaming onto the bridge. And she's telling us how many houses have declared fealty to Cole, who obviously has taken over the ship for himself, and anyone who declares fealty to him and proves their worth are granted cloaking technology. She says, I'm going to declare fealty to you, and he's like, that's not enough. What else can you give me? And she says this weird thing that I don't know why she would admit this. She says, my spies say you have a prisoner who won't talk. Like, she tells him right there she's spying on him. Like, we know she's from a house of spies, but I'm sure it's common Klingon knowledge, but it's weird that she would just up front say that to him.
0: Maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe even in telling the truth, she is deceptive.
1: Maybe. Maybe. After that, he's like, all right, you find some information, get some dirt that gives me honor, and we'll talk about you joining the House of Coal." And then she, he kind of turns around and she's like, "Er."
0: This is the first time Lorelle has been back on the sarcophagus ship since Cole took it over, and she and Voke were evicted several episodes ago, as far as we know. We've seen her once before, which was in the episode where Lorca saves Ash Tyler from her prison ship, where we were first introduced to Harry Mudd, and that's when she got that phaser burn to the face, which is very recognizable. At the time, we didn't even know that that was Lorelle on that no. ship. Now it's yeah. very obvious, because she has the scars to show for it.
1: If you listen to the... Podcast here as we go. It's kind of like the we're still learning learning the characters as we go, and we miss some of those once in a while. Or like how uh, we didn't realize that was Lorel. Uh, I thought he was saying Nash Tyler instead of Ash, or Culver instead of or Culber is his actual name, Doctor Culber instead of Culver. So sorry.
0: And apparently, whenever we see a female Klingon in a white outfit, that must be Lorel.
1: Apparently, she's the only one we've seen like that. But you know, the Duras sisters in Star Trek—they just had boob windows. Oh, so that was their identifying marker. So at least she's got something a little more.
0: Yeah, that is one part of the Klingon redesign that I am glad for.
1: <laughs> I, mean, I don't mind Klingon boobs.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure they're necessarily necessary.
1: Oh, I agree. I agree. Uh, is there anything you want to analyze from that scene?
0: No, I I think that's it. I mean, we have Cole, who looks like a god of war with his red face paint, and he hasn't changed that much. And he gives Laurel the opportunity to interrogate their prisoner, who has not been mentioned by name or face, but we can all guess who it was, because last time we saw Cole, he was abducting Admiral Cornwell.
1: Yeah, the scene was pretty much more of an exposition of what the Klingon B-story is going to be this week. And it also showed us Laurel is not happy with Cole when she growls at him. And then we kind of just cut ahead.
0: Right. Now we are in the torture chamber. Laurel has been let into Admiral Cornwell's cell. It is her. And there is a guard at the door. The door has been shut. But of course, you always leave a guard at the door to make sure that no foul play is happening inside or that anybody's trying to escape. And Laurel says to Cornwell, scream. And Cornwell says, no, that's silly. Why would I do that? And so Laurel gets right up in her business and screams at her. And Cornwell screams back. Then the guard, hearing what appears to sound like torture, walks away, and Laurel calmly says to Cornwell, that was very convincing. The guard has gone away. Now we can talk.
1: Yeah, another very short scene. But we see that Laurel is like, she's up to something now.
0: Why do you think Cornwell screamed back?
1: Well, it's very possible this was a very different kind of interrogation that she's received, and she knew something was up. But we don't know anything about her time after her capture, other than she's a prisoner that won't talk. And seeing this new Klingon, and it's pro- it's a woman. Maybe she's never encountered a Klingon woman before, or at least as a torture. Maybe she senses something. Maybe, uh. But there, there isn't really any kind of indication until Lorel is like, "Good, good job," that she should pick up on.
0: Yeah, Cornwell is as surprised as she should be that this is not actually a torture session. But as- and as for her screaming, it- she looked pissed off. She looked like. She wasn't oh. yelling out of fear or torture. She was getting right up in Laurel's business and yelling back.
1: I just remembered something I, I felt when I watched that scene for the first time. It was Klingons only kind of respond to you fighting back like them. I mean, it happened even when Tyler was in there. You know, like they're fighting back. That's how they respect you, in a sense. Cornwall's just getting up in her business because up in her business.
0: So basically speaking her language. yeah. Yeah, it did seem like Cornwell was trying to out-yell Laurel, and yet, at the same time, since Laurel had just said to scream and Cornwell said no, it seemed like Cornwell was tricked pretty quickly into changing her mind. Yeah, yeah.
1: But it was also a very short scene.
0: Yeah, but I liked it, because we hadn't seen Cornwell lately. We'd only ever really seen her either in an official capacity or in Lorca's bed, so to see her in a difficult physical situation and responding well and bravely to it, it was a nice character opportunity, I thought.
1: And we know she is tough. When I was just I always assumed it,
0: <laughs> right? Exactly. This is the first evidence we've seen.
1: So next we come back. It's a few minutes later or moments later, and Laurel and Cornwell are just sitting down having a chat. <laughs> and Laurel asks her, "What do you do? What does the Federation do with its prisoners?" And she seems kind of shocked that Cornwell is like, oh, they're imprisoned, uh, interrogated humanely." And then they returned after war, uh, after peace, or settling peace. And Lorel's kind of like, you don't execute your prisoners? And I was like, no, we don't have the death penalty. And hearing this, Lorel says, I want to defect. This moment, I'm, makes me wonder if there is, it made, it's made to look like she's watching out for herself. But to me, it, it also could say she's trying to watch out for someone else, someone she knows that's on the inside.
0: Because she goes on and talks about that person.
1: Yeah, she, she uh says that Cole, the Patek in charge of the ship, he has no honor. And because of Cole, she is alone. She mentions the crew bit, and she mentions the torchbearer of Takuvma. We know his Vogue. He was chased away.
0: Yeah, that was a strange statement, because... We don't know that Voke was chased away. We don't know what happened to Voke. We haven't seen him since he disappeared off the remains of the Shenzhou. We've been suspecting maybe he has infiltrated the Discovery, but whatever happened, the idea that he was sincerely actually chased away, the idea that Laurel is telling the truth here is completely implausible because there's no way that Discovery would write off a major character just by saying, oh, he ran away, never to be seen again. He was lost.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's very, very on like
0: I also really liked that Laurel is speaking English, because people have commented, including myself, that the Klingon is always speaking Klingon, even when there are no humans around, which is completely natural, but it means a lot of subtitles for us, the viewer. So it was nice to have a Klingon scene that doesn't have subtitles. We've seen that before, of course, like when Lorca was being tortured, but uh, it was just a welcome change.
1: Yeah, I can definitely appreciate it when writing notes for the podcast because I don't need to keep alt-tabbing and stopping the video <laughs> to read what <it> they're
0: saying. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why they're doing it, Bree. It's for us, exactly, for, us, for, yeah. for, the, for transcription I, purposes.
1: It's appreciated.
0: Yeah, I was also surprised that Cornwell was so open about how Starfleet works with its prisoners. Granted, nothing she said was a trade secret. It's not like she was talking about the Discovery Ants Mushroom Drive, but just to say, oh, this is how we conduct ourselves in war. And this is something that we think Klingon should know, so there you go. I mean, I guess if Georgiou had offered that as part of her peace talks in one of the first episodes, she would have answered that question if she'd been asked. But it just, again, seemed like Cornwell was very quick to believe and trust Laurel As long as the discussion went. Like, when it actually came to action, Cornwell showed suspicion and doubt, as she should, because she's a good Starfleet officer and she doesn't trust the enemy. But as far as conversation goes, she's like, oh, let's sit down and have a confab.
1: Yeah, apparently, uh, during After Trek, I did not get a chance to see this, uh, it was mentioned by the woman who plays Cornwell, but she mentioned that that scene was much longer, and it was cut.
0: Oh, I'd love to see that.
1: I know, right? So maybe we'll see it in part two? Or... It'll be in some deleted scenes because apparently it was much longer.
0: Cool. I wonder what else they could have talked about. Any ideas?
1: I know, right? Oh, what they want to do later because they're talking about their escape plan too.
0: I could imagine Lorelle saying something like, "Have you been treated well?" to try to earn her trust. Uh, I, I can't imagine Lorelle bringing her. Food like Cole did to her crew or her bringing Cornwell like a transwarp conduit or whatever it was that she stole from the Shenzhou. <laughs> I know it wasn't that. But yeah, yeah I, I don't think Cornwell would have been so easily plied with vodka like she was previously.
1: Oh, <laughs> well, then we get a quick moment of uh, their escape plan.
0: Yes, they're going to dig a tunnel out through the cell and into the cargo bay.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's really weird that they would do that. No, uh, Lorel. <laughs> She um, actually starts talking about Discovery. She says, I want you to bring me to your ship. And and Cornwell is kind of confused. Like, my ship?
0: Admirals don't have ships.
1: Yeah. And she, so she starts talking about Discovery. She knows about Discovery. And is like, why should I trust you? And Norell's basically like, you've got no other option. You need me if you want to survive.
0: It's true. I mean, Cornwell isn't going anywhere. This is the best chance she's gotten since she's been captured. So... Again, Cornwell could just stay there and wait to be rescued, but that hasn't happened yet, and it seems unlikely.
1: So next we get a scene where Lorel and Cornwell are walking around the Klingon ship, uh, just talking like uh, old girlfriends, and not really. (laughs) But Lorel is walking around trash-talking Cole. She mentions she wants to blow up the ship as they... What they're doing is they're trying to get to her ship and get out of the Sarcophagus ship. And she mentions she's going to blow up the ship as they leave. And she adds... My only regret is that we will not see his pretty painted face as he breathes his last breath. There's a little pause, and in the background, Cole walks around the corner. And it's almost like Lorelle has this look in her eyes like, He's right behind me, isn't he?
0: <laughs> Classic.
1: <laughs> but yeah, Cole comes around the corner and is like, What are you doing with the prisoner? And obviously they were not doing anything but talking, so... Cornwell and Laurel look at each other. They know what they have to do here. They have to... But,
0: but they exchange words before they do anything.
1: Uh, yeah, what did they say?
0: When Laurel realizes that they're being watched by Cole, she turns to Cornwell and says, you are not what I expected. And Cornwell says, neither are you. And then they start fighting.
1: Yeah, they, they have this look that they know what they have to do at this point. They have to fight whether uh, it's fake or real. They have to do a real fight whether they want to or not. During this moment, it looks like L'Rell kills Cornwell, as she shoves her into some kind of conduit in the corner. And then after seeing the limp body fall to the ground, L'Rell kind of looks over at Cole, and she does this thing. It's like, oh, she totally tried to escape, and uh, I'll clean this up. You can go. Don't worry about this. Just go. I got it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> totally. You can trust me. I'll take care of this. The yep. fact that you caught us just chatting in the hallway and not fighting or trying to escape is not at all telling.
1: Larelle is not good at this for being a housewife. I know, anyway. right? Gee whiz.
0: <laughs> so, uh, do you think that Cornwell is actually dead? Not one bit. Because I mean, she uh, does appear to be sincerely unconscious.
1: If she was really dead, they would not keep zooming in on her body and her face like they do. Just a Hollywood tricks. like they would just drag the body around
0: Well, to that point, Lorel then drags Cornwell's body into another room, and I don't know that we would see that if Cornwell was actually dead. Not yeah. that that is all that disturbing or gross, but and I know that Star Trek Discovery is breaking a lot of precedence at the same time, dragging a corpse of a human officer around just seems like a bit much even for Discovery. I, I don't know that I can explain why, because it's not like the body's being violated in any way, it's not even all that particularly gruesome a corpse, but just dragging it around doesn't seem like they would do that to a corpse on Star Trek.
1: No, no, it, does, it, it would feel out of place.
0: Especially after everything they've built up with Lorel being a deceiver and Cornwell being a fairly upright Starfleet officer in an era where that is not always seen. It seems like this would be an ignominious... Waste of a character and a death for her to just be thrown into a conduit in a Klingon corridor and then we never see her again.
1: Yeah, so, so we see Larell dragging Cornwell's body into some room. It was kind of confusing when it first aired it because like, well, they were going to go to her, her ship. Is she on her ship? No, but uh, it's probably not uh, her ship in the cargo bay. But she finds the bodies of her former crewmates in various states of decay and shredded. Body remains, and like this is very much the Klingon way of doing things. We don't know how long they've been dead, but this is a surprise to Lorel. And you know, we know Lorel wasn't on the ship before this, so finding her old roommates, and she at this point she realizes that Cole never cared about the crew that was on there, uh, the the ship of misfits, and Cole just wanted the ship for the tech.
0: So, do you think these are her crewmates from back when Voke was the captain of the sarcophagus ship?
1: Yeah, absolutely. She knew all of them, so yeah. Totally. I think I think I even recognize some of them.
0: I thought the bodies would be in more of a state of decay after six months. Some of them looked fairly whole.
1: Well, I mean, Klingon ships are pretty clean. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so these are the crew members that Cole fed all those months ago in order to gain captaincy of the ship, and then he ejected them or destroyed them. Yeah, yeah. And yet, that is the same time when Laurel supposedly pled her fealty to Cole, and then escaped in her own ship to save Vogue, don't you think that Cole now would say, by the way, I thought you were on my ship when we warped out all those months ago. Where did you disappear to?
1: You know, that's also a good point. Maybe she said, like, oh, I uh, left something on the Shenzhen, I gotta go get it real quick. Hold on.
0: Well, she had said to Vogue, we don't have long before Cole realizes I'm missing.
1: Yeah, yeah, so I don't know what's up with that. Maybe it'll be explained later, which a lot of things in Star Trek are, but or maybe it's a little hand-wavy.
0: And as for this room and its nature, I think it's essentially a morgue because we also see an empty sarcophagus ready to be loaded.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: So I wasn't sure if maybe, just like how in episode number two, they beamed a bomb onto a Klingon corpse to be beamed onto the sarcophagus ship, I wasn't sure if they were going to now put Cornwell's body in the sarcophagus and try to ship it out somewhere and say, oh, no, 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 this is just a body, just a corpse, but it's actually Cornwell escaping.
1: She could totally put Cornwell into basically uh, the sarcophagus. She could go get into her ship and then be in the sarcophagus over there and then uh, call it good.
0: Right, because when the sarcophagus is ejected from the morgue bay to go be placed on the outer hull of the sarcophagus ship. There may be a time when it goes outside the shields, which would allow somebody else to beam the contents of the sarcophagus onto their own ship. Yeah. Uh, we'll see if that happens.
1: Mm-hmm. Or if it's just our uh, fan or our fan fiction.
0: I don't know. If I was going to write fan fiction, it would be much more exciting. <laughs> so we've seen Laurel express her desire to exact revenge for her fallen crewmates at the hands of Cole. And now she goes to the Klingon Bridge... And she is once again playing the part of his partner, his interrogator. She is working with him and for him. And she says that before Cornwell died, I learned from her that the USS Discovery has technology that allows them to be anywhere. And that if the Klingon Empire had that technology, they would be able to overtake not just the Federation, but perhaps the entire galaxy.
1: So yeah, what is interesting here is that Cornwell, at least as we saw it, never said any of this to Lorel, So she obviously knows this from su- somewhere else.
0: And it seems like it's not a secret that Discovery has such technology because that's one of the reasons Cornwell told Lorca to cool it on the excursions, that they feel that the Klingons may have identified them as the secret weapon. So I, I, it doesn't seem like this is a secret at this point.
1: Yeah, they may, they, I think the Klingons called it the ghost ship before. It just the appears out of nowhere. Right. And so it's not a secret, so why would she tell this like it was some new information to Cole?
0: Maybe she thinks she got more details and that she has them to offer and she's holding back. Uh, regardless, Cole says that she was very sloppy. Lorel was sloppy in letting Cornwell escape or try to escape at least. And Laurel says fine, I will take my interrogation skills elsewhere. She goes to leave and Cole says like, no, 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 no. Let's not be hasty. Come back. <laughs> you know, as my campaign continues, it would be valuable to have a skilled interrogator. Let me paint you up like a god of war so you can join me. And she kneels. He paints her up. And then he turns on her, which is really weird, I thought, and says, did you not think I would see through your deceit? And he has her hauled away. I don't understand why he let his own deception go on so long. He could have called her out as soon as she walked in the room, as soon as she tried to walk away. Instead, he goes through with this whole body paint gesture, and then he calls her out.
1: Yeah, it is a little weird, but it might be relevant that... When he says, like, don't you think I can see through your deceit? But we don't know which deceit he means.
0: And there have been so many.
1: Yeah, so he could think that she wanted to give her fealty to him. He doesn't know what the lie is, but it may not be relevant to her being in the house or not.
0: And it may be a lie that she wanted him to detect. It may be just layers upon layers of deception.
1: Well, I guess we'll find out. But yeah, we don't know which deceit he means right now.
0: And we won't find out in this episode because that is pretty much the end of the Klingon track in this part of Season 1, Episode 8.
1: Yeah, we'll cover the last bit what happens in a moment.
0: So while we're done with the Klingons, we're going to rewind a little bit, do the time warp again, and go back to the beginning of the episode where it actually started on the bridge of the USS Discovery, where they are in the middle of a fight, a real fight, with the Klingons, It's not a virtual one like we saw before. The fight actually begins with the USS Gagarin, named after the Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin. And they are fighting the Klingons. Multiple ships have ambushed the Gagarin. And they are on the comm, asking for any ships within the vicinity to help out. And poof! The Discovery pops into existence and says, We got your back. We will help. The Discovery does everything they can to fire at the ships get the Klingons off the Gagarin's back. The Klingons nonetheless get two torpedo shots off at the Gagarin, and the Discovery, although its ships are failing, tries to intercept the shots to actually take a hit for the team. They're able to intercept one of the photon torpedoes at great cost of themselves, but they miss the second one, and it hits the Gagarin, and it completely explodes. So with nothing left to defend... The Discovery spores out and they warp out of existence to somewhere else that they are safe from the Klingons. And we actually get to see Stamets' cybernetics in use. This is the first time since he pulled up his sleeve and revealed them in the last episode where we see him actually connecting and then disconnecting from the spore drive. Now, before we get to Stamets a little bit further, I want to say it was bold of Discovery... Not only, of course, to back up the gagger and to try to take shots, you could see that Lorca's crew were dubious at putting themselves intentionally in harm's way like that, but also to use the spore drive so blatantly in clear view of the Klingons.
1: Oh yeah, that's not the first time they've done it either, though.
0: I mean, was that the time that they were saving the mining colony? Yeah, yeah. Because they destroyed those Klingon ships, so there there should have been no survivors to tell the tale of the ghost ship.
1: But but there have been reports of it before, so I don't...
0: Yeah, I I mean, I assume that there have been excursions Discovery has embarked upon that we've not seen on air, because that's how these rumors got started. But it seems like they're not even making an attempt to hide themselves now. They could have gone to Warp 9 hit a local nebula and then spore out of there. But no, they're just like we're in the middle of battle. It's kind of like playing Breath of the Wild, and all those Lizalfos and Clins are ganging up on you, and you can just fast travel to a safe point in the middle of battle, and that is so cheesy. And I cannot but wonder if the monsters know what's happening.
1: You know, I, I never, I never do that. So <laughs> you'd,
0: you'd rather just die.
1: Uh, well, no, it just hasn't come up yet. <laughs>
0: I mean, I prefer to run away and reassess the situation from a safe point and see if I can re-engage the enemy on my own terms. And if there isn't that opportunity, then I spore out of there and go stay in somebody's house and rest up and fill my hearts.
1: You bravely run away.
0: It is the better part of valor. I'm just questioning the way in which Discovery did it.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: Regardless of the right or wrong of how they did it, they did spore out, and as I said, we got to see Stamage cybernetics, and when he disconnects and comes out of the spore room, whatever you want to call it, you notice something particular about his appearance.
1: Yeah, I haven't seen anyone else talk about it. His eyes are black, just like in the mirror scene a few episodes ago.
0: I mean, his eyes always have sort of a ethereal quality to them. Was it even more pronounced No, it's here? just like, like
1: there's no color in the eyes. It's all just the the, the whites and black. Oh, wow. And that happened in the mirror scene, too, so...
0: I don't think I noticed that in the mirror scene. Yeah. Yeah, so he he comes out of there, and he is disoriented. He's sort of holding himself up like he needs the support. And he looks at Tilly, who's been manning the spore injection drive, and he looks at her and he says, What are you doing here, Captain? And Tilly yeah. is super confused by this. And then immediately, he like, she asks, What are you talking about? And... All that niceness that I've been complaining about in Stamets disappears and he is immediately a jerk to Tilly. He's like, what are you talking about? I didn't say any such thing. Is your job so boring that you have to daydream? Do I need to boot you out of here and replace you with a more attentive cadet?
1: Yeah, just like, jump back to that. Like, who is this?
0: Now, what was your thought when he said, what are you doing here, Captain?
1: My immediate thought was um, he's seen the future, or he's seen another universe?
0: Yes, I immediately thought that he was seeing the future, because it has been a running plot through Discovery that Tilly wants to be a captain, and for Samus to address her as captain seems like it's foretelling something. A mirror universe, possibly, is not something that immediately occurred to me, but that would be, like, the perfect polar opposite for cadet Sylvia Tilly, for her to be, like, some wicked, evil captain in the mirror universe. (laughs) i love, love to see her in that role.
1: It'd be perfect. And the way he says it so casually is whatever multiverse version of him saw this, uh, it was very normal.
0: Right. Like, he wasn't questioning that she was a captain. It was just like, what are you doing here? It's kind of like when Worf was jumping through multiple timelines and he didn't think Picard was at his birthday party. And then he turns around and he's there and, he, and Worf is like, Captain, I didn't think you were coming. It was just that casual. Like, oh, yeah. what are you doing here? Yeah. Uh, So he storms off, Tilly is sort of shaken, because she has every reason to believe she's doing her job well, and now all of a sudden she's not that sure, thanks to Stamets being a jerk. But then we cut away back to the ready room, where Lorca is being debriefed by the Vulcan Admiral, who has confirmed that other ships were ambushed, ships that were in better positions to save the Gagarin. And so this was apparently a setup by multiple Klingons and multiple houses, not only to attack those ships, but perhaps also to lure the Discovery in, since it would be the only ship left that could help.
1: Yeah, it was obviously some kind of planned thing, and to me, almost it says to me it says they had someone on the inside. They knew exactly what to do, when to do it, like attacking. Attacking. Um, there seems to be some reason that Cole attacked the Gagarin and two other ships, but we don't know it. Does he have someone on the inside? Is it just a planned tactical move? We're not sure yet.
0: This attack also confirms that multiple Klingon ships and houses now have the invisible shields, as I think they're calling them, or at least you know what we would call cloaking devices.
1: Yeah, we haven't actually heard the cloaking device word yet.
0: That's right. It has not been called that, and yet we know that's what it is, and they are concerned that this means that the Klingons can attack us anywhere, anytime. And I would think that At some point in Starfleet's evolution, they have figured that out because we never saw a mass invasion of cloaked ships happen in the TNG era, for example. If the technology was that flawless, then you could cloak an entire fleet, armada, squadron, whatever, of Klingon ships and just march them to Earth's doorstep and then launch a barrage against our planet. And we never saw anything like that happen.
1: No, we didn't. It was only DS9 when all the Klingons came to attack the ship station. We saw anything similar to that?
0: Well, actually, now that I think about it, there was that time when Tasha Yar's half-Romulan daughter was trying to lead a Romulan squadron, and Data was the captain, and he created this like energy web to detect them using mm-hmm. tachyon pulses, I think. Mm-hmm. So there was that time that we tried to see an Invisible Squadron trying to get by Starfleet. But that was just one time, and it failed. I feel like with the technology being so new and no countermeasures having been developed yet, Starfleet was very vulnerable. And it seems like Lorca and his Vulcan Admiral are realizing this.
1: Totally. And, you know, we've actually seen cloaking technology even on Enterprise. So it makes me wonder if it's one of the situations where it's one of those situations where it's no longer considered cloaking tech if uh, you can detect it at some point. And so like as we don't we can always see it, so they're just trying to hide from us. I don't know. Like cloaking technology just evolves and so they have to come up with new ways to try to find it.
0: You know like in Star Trek 6, they we had a cloaked Klingon ship that could also fire while cloaked.
1: Yeah, it was such a big deal.
0: <laughs> I want to go back and rewatch that movie. That was a great movie. Yes. They're aware of their vulnerabilities Starfleet and there's something else that you notice Bree.
1: Yeah, well, on the bridge scene during the fight, uh, we're actually seeing everyone, uh, you know, in action. Everyone's like, I captain, I captain. Yeah, we got this. Something I noticed was that, you know, some of the Discovery crew were also on the Shenzo, uh, including Lieutenant, or, uh, Ensign, I'm not sure her rank, uh, Detmer, who has the side shave like I do. I love her. In Shenzhou, she was like, why are we fighting kind of mentality? She was very scared. And here, six, seven months later, she is fierce and like, oh, like, yes, let's do this. We can do this. And very confident in her prowess. I just thought it was interesting seeing the growth of a character that we've maybe seen on screen a total of 30 seconds in the whole series.
0: So it seems that she's really been affected by her experiences. And whereas she was gun shy before, now she, part of her perhaps, is eager for revenge, for a rematch.
1: Yeah, and I just love how Discovery is showing growth in all all the characters, not just the main characters. We see people even in the background or lesser characters who have changed, and I just really like that attention to detail.
0: Even characters who almost never have any lines whatsoever.
1: Yeah, she said maybe three things the whole series.
0: I hope we get to hear more from her and figure out what is up with her appearance. Yeah, I know, right? Alright, so we've seen a lot happen on the Discovery, but that's only the first few minutes of the show. The rest of the show doesn't take place on the Discovery, for the most part. It takes place on a new-to-us alien planet called Pavo. That's the place, but what about the time? Sabriel, you noticed something about that?
1: The Stardate is... Matches more the episode 3-4 timeline, where later episodes have been in the 2000s. This episode and those original ones, or episodes 3-4 or so, take place around the 1300s in Stardate. So, what's going on with the time?
0: I thought star dates incremented very gradually. And to have a jump from star date 1308 to star date 2000, that sounds like it would take months or years to progress that far.
1: Yeah. And I mean, there is a hypothesis since star dates are mostly just made up by Roddenberry to sound kind of neat. But um, there's some hypotheses that maybe it's all relative to location as well as time. But there's you know inconsistency throughout the series, all series. so
0: I thought there was online an actual converter from Gregorian calendar to star date.
1: I don't know if that's any has any validity or if what not, because there's never been a for sure thing. like I, I don't think it's real. I think it's just the best guess.
0: I mean, it's certainly not canon, that's for sure. But I thought nonetheless star dates were sufficiently consistent that we could infer some conclusions about how they work.
1: Well, especially the original series had very inconsistent things. And I think Next Generation usually had five or six digits in theirs, and they actually used four one time as an oversight. Oh, geez. Just like the original series. So take them for a very loose grain of salt. Like Enterprise, I think, did it great because they just used real dates to us.
0: Right, because they didn't have star dates yet. Mm-hmm. They like, star date, May 13th.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well. So anyway, uh, the reason I want to bring this up is because Discovery has put so much detail. Like I just mentioned, they're talking about you know, the detail of background characters, and it seemed odd that this was a mistake. It's very possible it was, but it almost seems like it might be relevant later.
0: Maybe they've traveled into the past. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. But yeah, so they are on a alien planet because they have a mission. This planet, the entire planet, produces sound. You you could say it's melodious, you could say it's harmonic, it is nonetheless constant sound. Somewhere on the planet, which is primarily blue in its foliage, I can't imagine what that must have been like to edit in Final Cut Pro, (laughs) there is a giant Tower of Babel-type structure. It is a crystalline structure, not an entity, but a structure, that is just a straight-up pillar that reaches almost up into the sky, into the clouds, and it's acting as some sort of a transmitter. And the question is, Can Starfleet manipulate this sound and this transmitter to work as a sonar that will allow them to detect cloaked Klingon ships?
1: The transmitter itself, or just detect from it what they can learn from it.
0: Yeah, it seems kind of strange that they would think that they can use an entire planet to detect Klingon ships anywhere. And also, sonar, I mean, that's a known technology. Why do they need to adapt an organic manifestation of it when there is sonar technology. Like, we have figured that out in 2017.
1: Uh, Space Technobabble. That's right. That's why.
0: Waving hands, look over here. Ah. (laughs) We also get to learn a little bit more about Saru's species, because he is grumbling that it's taking them so long to walk there because they couldn't beam right down to the transmitter. And he could be there very quickly because... Michael Burnham confirms, yes, we are much slower as humans because Kelpians, which is Saru's alien race, can run up to 80 kilometers per hour, which is about 50 miles per hour.
1: Yeah, she's having this discussion with Ash Tyler, who's with the the landing party is Ash Tyler, Michael Burnham, and Saru. And they're having this discussion about what Kelpians can do, and Saru adds (laughs) this little quip, yes, and we particularly enjoy being discussed in the third person while present. (laughs) It's not the first time she's done that to him.
0: (laughs) Yeah, he can be a little bit snippy, but then he says, nonetheless, you are correct. We do run very fast. Yeah. Uh, And he also acknowledges that if there was a threat, he'd probably figure it out because his threat gangly would come out. And although they haven't come out, he is nonetheless very uncomfortable because his heightened senses, which he has developed by being a species of prey, makes the constant sound of the planet... Almost like just a consistent migraine that won't leave them alone. It's almost like tinnitus. Yes, yes. Uh, And this is about when they realize that they might not be alone. The planet's pollen, its ragweed, manifests itself. (laughs) It just sort of coalesces uh, into a single allergen entity. And it starts uh, almost taking on a vaguely humanoid shape. Maybe not so much in the limbs, but certainly in the vertical orientation, like trying to mimic what they're seeing in Saru.
1: Yeah, you could, abs- you could totally see that in there. I thought it was kind of a neat effect.
0: Yeah, and they scan it, and it doesn't come up as a life form, but Saru seems to want to talk to it, and he believes that this entity wants them to follow it.
1: Yeah, and I it's like, okay, cool. Oh, he, I mean, there's this little line where he's like, Gives his phaser rifle to Ash. He's like, keep this pointed at the ground <laughs> while he's talking to it.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. He is definitely trying to be diplomatic. Does, does Saru say at some point in this episode that like his specialty is first contact?
1: Yeah, he's a first contact specialist.
0: I mean, I guess I'm not surprised that there are such things. I didn't think that they would be the first officer on a starship. And also, I thought Burnham, that was sort of like her thing. Not necessarily first contact with sentient species, but xenobiology, right?
1: Uh-huh. Well there is no biology.
0: I guess there's just uh, ragweed, but
1: <laughs> I mean she even says multiple times it's mentioned it's not a life form. It's life, Jim is not as we know it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly, yes.
1: So then we cut ahead. Uh later in the day, uh cause Saru has said I think it wants us to follow it, and we come to a an empty hut. Now why there's an empty hut on a planet with no animal life?
0: I don't know. I mean I mean, maybe the blue species wants to be accommodating, but they would only know to do that if they have been visited before.
1: Yeah, so I thought that was odd. Maybe it was something, an oversight. Uh, like I said, though, I don't know. There's probably a reason. Anyway, Saru says that it seems like the thing wants to talk. And at this point, Ash is like, we don't know their intention. He's And Saru's like, it's cool. I'd be the first to know. I have Threat Ganglia. I would know if we're in danger. Uh, the Mist and Saru share a moment... As the mist touches his hand, and they're like, oh my god, are you okay? Because he comes back going, ah! Kind of like the hot, if you touch a stove.
0: <laughs> Not painful, just uncomfortable.
1: Right, and they're like, you okay? He's like, no, no, it's cool, they just want to talk, it was just a little weird. And then at that point, Burnham's like, we we'll, we can no longer use a transmitter, because we have to start using first contact protocols instead of general order one con- protocols.
0: Right. At first, Tyler thinks it's due to General Order 1 that they cannot interfere with a planet's natural evolution. But she's like, actually, we are beyond that. This is a pre-warp industry, and we have nonetheless now been introduced to them. We need to follow first contact protocols. And so that is a completely different mission, completely different set of rules that they now have to follow. They can't use the transmitter without the native inhabitants' permission. Just like Starfleet doesn't go around to undeveloped civilizations and pillaging them for all the dilithium that they need.
1: Mm-hmm. hmm So, we fade away, and Cyrus has gone. He's talking to the blue mist, and to the allergens, as he put it. <laughs> and Brennan and Tyler are talking about what they're going to do after the war. And Tyler has this moment where he's talking about going to Lake Shasta in California. He wants to go... Uh, I think he has a house there, or wants to put a house there. Uh, he wants to go trout fishing. He's heard, he heard trout fishing is good there. And Brandon was kind of like oh, that sounds awesome but uh, we have a different future ahead of us. And she's like, after this I'm going back to prison. I have a life sentence. Tyler says this little moment where he's trying to be romantic. He says like, well then let's just not work. Let's just not do this mission. Let's try to extend the war so we can be together longer. Uh, he's trying to be romantic. To me it was a little weird thing to say but apparently it worked because they sent they shared a sweet kiss right after that.
0: But also not before quoting ancient Vulcan proverbs.
1: Yeah, he, he's like... You know, they're like? She's like, the needs of the many. And and he has this thing where like... What, what was it again, exactly?
0: And like she says the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And he says, yeah, but what about the needs of the few or the one? Or something like that. Anyway, he's trying to emphasize that it's not that the needs of the few or the one are unimportant or should be overlooked. And then they realize that there's something important happening right here. Even though there's something much more significant happening on a wider scale out there in space, what's happening between these two individuals is also very important. And they go in for the kiss.
1: Yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> so sweet. <laughs> then I had a thought. And she's like, she says she had a life sentence. I had this little thought in the back of my head, like, well, maybe if there's some way she dies and comes back, she served her life sentence because, you know, she died.
0: I mean, that happened in Buffy. A new chosen one, a new Slayer, is only supposed to happen after Buffy dies. And she died and came back and found that there was a new Slayer in town. (laughs) What the heck? I don't know how court-martials work. I kind of thought that her life sentence had been erased by being conscripted. Granted, she had lost her rank, and I realized she was never going to get that back. But I kind of thought that she could continue serving on board the Discovery indefinitely.
1: No, I think I was handsome before. Like Lorca was like, basically, I can do this. I can do this during wartime, and so here you're working with me.
0: I see that is an important distinction. Also, if you were to Google the city of Shasta Lake, California's website, you go to their homepage, and the very first announcement right on the homepage is that they now have on their website a page dedicated to cannabis-related activities.
1: <laughs> you can go trout fishing while you're getting high.
0: So we can see what Ash Tyler sees in that hometown. No, of
1: his. it's a good place for uh. Stamets to go get high Ah, You say
0: Portobello I say Portabella. <laughs> what is it with him in Mushrooms? Anyway.
1: So then we get to the mess hall on Discovery one of the lo- uh, few moments where we go back on the ship.
0: That's true. I guess we could have done this in three tracks but no let's just stick to two. <laughs> there is a scene with Tilly and Stamets that you're going to tell us about.
1: Yeah Stamets is sitting in mess hall just reading and Tilly comes up and sits next to him and she's basically, she just comes up and is like what is going on with you? Just a minute, a little bit ago, a few days ago, you were all, like, high and happy, and now you're back to your old persnickety self. <laughs> and he has this moment where he's like, you're dismissed, cadet, and she just stands there and stares at him with this glare. I'm like, i like, nope, I'm staying here. He's finally like, okay, okay. Uh, he says uh, he's having troubles because one moment he knows where he is, he knows who you are, I know who you are, Tilly, I know what I'm doing, and then suddenly everything changes and it all gets jumbled. And he's kind of troubled by this until he's like, we can get, we can talk to Doctor Culber, and see if we can help out. And he's like, no, I can't talk to Hugh. Mentions him by name because basically, either way he loses, uh, in, either way he hurts him, because he could tell Starfleet what's going on, or, or Culver Culber would have to tell Starfleet what's going on, and then that would mean Stamets is taken away to be poked and prodded if he uh tells Culber, and but Colbert doesn't say anything, and Starfleet finds out his career is over. So, to Stamets, it, it's a lose lose situation either way. It sucks.
0: Right. So, Tilly offers to jump in and say, if you can't tell Colbert, you can tell me. We will monitor your situation, try to figure out why it's happening, and draw whatever conclusions we can from the data we produce from our observations.
1: Yeah. So, we see Tilly putting her career on the line. To help Stamets.
0: That's right, because now she knows and is not telling Starfleet. So if they find out that she knew and didn't say anything... Oh, boy.
1: Yeah, so that's really... That was, I think, a big moment for Tilly.
0: Yeah, and also just in confronting Stamets in the first place, because he is very much outranking her. Oh, yeah. And when he tells her, you are dismissed... I can kind of see in her head thinking, A, this is important, and I need to figure out what's going on, so no, I'm not dismissed. And B, we're not on duty. We're at lunch. So no, you can't dismiss me from lunch. <laughs> yeah. This has always been my favorite period. You're not going to dismiss me from lunch. <laughs> so then we go back to Pavo, and yeah, so Saru has been off on his own talking to the mist. I don't know why we don't get to see that, but he comes back. It's evening time. He has... Tentatively come to the conclusion that the allergens with which he is communicating don't just live on the planet, that they are the planet. The planet is sort of like MOGO from the Green Lanterns. It is a living planet, and everything on it is all part of one large, interconnected bioorganism, which means that there is no conflict. The whole planet lives in peace and harmony. Everything on it coexists because it recognizes that it is all part of oneself and that you shouldn't fight your own body. And he finds that just amazing, because it is amazing. However, the constant noise doesn't make it, does make it hard for him. So he says, you know, let's all just get a good night's rest. And maybe we can put the sound behind us, and we'll continue this discussion in the morning. But he can't sleep. The sound keeps him up. So he, and he goes outside the tent, and the mist confronts him. And he basically says, please, please, can't you make it stop for just a moment? And we think he's talking about the sound, but we realize later that there may be something else he's referring to.
1: He goes outside, he's, he begs for them to help him, he almost almost seems like he's pleading to help quiet the noise, and the mist kind of coalesces, and it shoots right into his head, and he has this moment of panic, and it's kind of weird, as the sound is building up and building up, I don't know if it's intentional, first of all, but the sounds were the warp engines booting up, and the transporter effect noise, and I don't know if it's just because that was on hand and it sounded cool, or if that's very much intentional, I think we'll find out later.
0: Well, I mean they are replaying parts of Saru's life.
1: Oh, this is just just before the build up to that, before that happens. Oh. Yeah. So I thought that yeah. So this is just the build up before this before uh the sound is getting louder and louder and louder. The sp- the mist goes into him and suddenly his eyes like expand open and, and there's images of it through the whole season. Basically all the major moments we've seen on Discovery so far from Saru's point of view, he's replaying that and you see the pain that he's in. He's talking about uh how hard it is for him and <laughs> this is hurt me. He's, he's a troubled man because of his upbringing and his, just his culture and his life and we see there's more to he's not only talking about the noise on the planet we see he's talking about the noise the sound of everything that's going on in his head at this moment his whole life he's begging for them to finally bring harmony to him he wants to silence the noise the pain that's been going on his whole life and they appear to help him do that.
0: Yeah, we don't know how invasive that help is. We don't know in which, in which way the allergens have infiltrated Saru, in which way they have manipulated him. Yeah. We, none of that is non- known at this point. But we see the next morning that when Tyler and Michael wake up, Saru walks in and he seems refreshed. He's at peace. He tells them that they he has used the transmitter to contact Discovery. They are on their way. And that he did so with the... Pavin's permission. And so Burnham is excitedly concluding, that means we have their permission to fulfill our mission, and this could end the war. This is wonderful. And Saru says, yes, but there has been a slight change of plans. The Pavins will give us everything we want. Whatever we ask of them, we, they will grant us. But I'm going to need your communicators. And Burnham and Tyler are a little weirded out by such a strange request, but, you know, commanding officer. So they hand him over, Saru turns around, and in his mighty pause, he crushes them to pulp, and he basically says, we are not going to be communicating with Discovery. There is no need for us to ever leave this planet. The Povins will give us everything we want right here on the planet. Nobody is going to leave. This is where we can find Harmony.
1: Yeah, basically, they've invited us all. Everyone, everyone. Uh, We're going to bring everyone here and just uh, enjoy Harmony together.
0: Yeah, so this is very strange to me. At this point, I'm convinced that Saru has been subjugated, that he is under the influence, kind of like in the TNG episode The Game, where they're just going to do whatever they are told. This does not seem like Saru at all. I mean, he, he has constantly, constantly criticized Burnham for her mutiny and for getting her captain killed. And Saru said, I will do a better job than you did protecting my captain. And here he is, not necessarily going against a commanding officer in person, but he is violating the directives of his mission he is well we'll get into the rest of what he does but he's basically abandoning the mission and saying it's more important that we stay here and achieve peace and harmony within ourselves than that we determine a way to detect the klingons
1: yeah we've, this is a very different saru than we've ever seen
0: right which is why i'm sure that this is not saru that we are seeing this is not the character that we have come to know yeah this is this is the allergen's talking <laughs>
1: He's cooked up on uh, Benadryl.
0: It's true. You know, Sudafed, Claritin, Zyrtec, it's all coursing through his system. He doesn't know what he's saying.
1: Yeah, and Saru leaves the tent, and Tyler's like, uh, Lorca would never be cool with us just staying here. Something's up. Burnham is like, Well, we can't just use a transmitter. And it's like, Well, Saru said the mist said we could we could do anything. And this, using the transmitter, definitely falls under anything. And Bernard was having troubles with this thing, and he basically pulls rank with her. Again, we've seen this before. And to me, it almost like putting their, Jeopard- their relationship in jeopardy here. I don't think that's what they're going for. It's just something I was feeling.
0: I and mean, it's not the first time we've seen relationships in Star Trek span the Commander-Command-D dynamic. You know, like in TNG, Picard dated Nella Darren, and he had to order her to a very dangerous situation... In DS9, we saw Worf abandon his mission to save his wife. So these sorts of things do happen.
1: We also saw in Voyager the entire run when Janeway would ever have to have Chakotay do something.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but we, they never, no.
1: Can you will never take the ship away from me?
0: Oh, fine. You can have it. (laughs) Ship all you want, Sabriel. Ship all you want. Uh,
1: (laughs) That's where you, Char. She's a huge.
0: Oh, okay. uh, But but Janeway had Mark and his dog waiting for them
1: back home. Yeah, no, no. When you when you were close together for so long, you just have this relationship and you know, but no, 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 no. It's going back Chakotay to discovery.
0: didn't have a dog. <laughs> he could never win my heart.
1: Back back on discovery.
0: <laughs> anyway, yes, yeah, so Burnham has disappeared. She is going to execute the plan that Tyler has laid out, which violates the First contact rules because they're going to use the transmitter without the allergens' permission. So Burnham is alone in the tent. Saru brings food, and it looks like fungus is on the menu.
1: Yay! (laughs) No more rations, everybody. We can eat mushrooms. (laughs) It it was actually some kind of—I don't know what it was. It very much looked like fungus to me, but it was just like, all right, we can eat this thing. (laughs) And Stannis was
0: right. Mushrooms will save the world. So Saru notices that Burnham is not there and he's like, she must be starving. I'll go find her and feed her. And Tyler's like, uh, excuse me, I'm hungry too. <laughs> I thought that was so weird that Saru is so focused on feeding one of his crew and not the other.
1: Yeah, that was odd.
0: But Tyler's like, no, 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 wait, 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 come back, come back, come back, come back, come back. Don't go looking for Burnham Uh because... um
1: We totally had a fight. We...
0: <laughs> oh, that's right. He's like, yeah, we had a fight. So she's walking it off. And while you're here, tell me all about Harmony. Tell me about <laughs> Harmony. Sounds like you were fighting something and then you just stopped, Tyler says to Saru. And Saru is like... It seems to me like you are also fighting something. Like, I just stopped fighting. What are you fighting, Tyler? And Tyler's like, I want the Klingons to suffer. I know we're all at war with them, but I want them to suffer. They invade planets, and we fall back. They destroy ships, and we fall back. Well, no further. The line must be drawn here. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. Wait, oh, sorry. Too many treks just jumbling around in my head. And uh, so was like, "What? Even if it means becoming worse than them?" And Tyler's like, "Yes, I will sacrifice myself and become worse than them if it means making them feel what they put me through for those six months I was on that prison ship." Phew, that is deep.
1: It was. It wasn't pushed off as. It was very kind of a quick moment. But you know, if you sit there and analyze it, like, yeah, it's he went through some serious crap apparently.
0: Yeah, yeah, he went through kinds of assault that we don't often see in Star Trek. And so it would be understandable that he'd be dealing with some of that. And we've talked about how Discovery crew don't have enough time to overcome their trauma before being put back into war. Well, this is the result. This is what's happening with Tyler. He may be making this up in order to delay Saru going to look for Burnham, or he could actually be that hurt. So Saru says... Well, I have something here that might help you. It's something that the allergens gave to me. And it's weird, because it's just like this green rock that yeah. happens to be sitting on the floor.
1: <laughs> that was so weird. And Tyler's like, okay, I'm a Starfleet. We just do things without investigating.
0: Yeah, like this <laughs> thing wasn't there before. He's like, oh, let me grab this rock off the ground. Oh, here's a bubblegum wrapper. Let's try that see what happens. <laughs> and he says, here, hold it and touch it, and it'll help me understand what you're going through. And when Tyler does touch it, he does not get invaded like we think Saru has. Instead, it allows Saru to detect something about Tyler. Saru's threat ganglia kick in and immediately says, your intentions are false. The whole reason we're having this discussion is for you to delay me. Where's Michael? What's happening?
1: Yeah, and <laughs> this, during this scene, the whole time it's going on, right when Saru says, your intentions are false, Tyler does this, <gasps> kind of like, you caught me. And every single person who's who like uh, follows the evoke is a Klingon, or Ash is Voke thing, everyone's like, oh my god, did did Cyrus just figure it out? Figure it out? Oh my gosh, oh my gosh! And no, it was just you were just trying to, to distract me.
0: Yeah, he didn't see any further than that. So if there is a more substantial deception here, it's pretty deeply layered. It's possible that if Tyler is Vogue, Tyler might not even know it.
1: Yeah, something we've talked about before. Yeah. And uh, at that point, Cyrus just runs away. We cut ahead to Burnham using the matrix and jacking into the transmitter. And we see Saru, Turbo Saru, just racing through the forest. Actually, this is really cool to see him. Uh,
0: (laughs) Saru really knows how to gun it. Like, he is urgently trying to get to the transmitter before Burnham does something that Saru will regret. And he is running at those 50 miles per hour that we heard about.
1: It was neat to see. It was neat to see.
0: Yeah, we are often led to believe that most Starfleet crew members have very human-like qualities. And it freaks us out when we discover that's not the fact. Like, for example, Dr. Phlox can puff up like a balloon fish, which we saw once in Season 4, and that was it. And otherwise, he was pretty human. I mean, most creatures in Starfleet, they are alien not due to their body language, their mannerisms. It's because somebody glued a butt to their head.
1: Yeah. It's neat that we're actually seeing an alien being totally alien. Alright, so... Jump ahead to uh Saru is gets the jump on Michael as he finds her. And he they have us fight. He has, this is this really cool moment where he just shoves his foot into her chest and she goes flying, which is like a like a donkey kind of thing with the hoof fighting and the horse. It's like holy crap.
0: <laughs> yeah, it reminds me again of when I sneak up on a horse on in The Breath of the Wild and that, it kicks yeah. me. <laughs> like, oh, do not try to mount Saru. Nope, don't do it. <laughs>
1: And she gets a hold of the phaser, and she starts shooting him with stun setting, and it's taking, like, multiple blasts to keep him back, keep him at bay. He's on the ground. This is... A second viewing of this was, like, really hit me. But um she says to him, like, this isn't you. Is this what harmony and balance look like? And he has this pained expression on his face, and he says, you've taken it from me. You won't stop taking... Uh, talking directly to Burnham. He is so hurt by her and it just like it was crushing to see that.
0: Yeah, it seems like no matter how many telescopes she gives him, he will always hold this pain against her.
1: uh uh-huh. He stands up, just getting ready getting ready to continue the fight. And suddenly like Tyler is, I don't know if it's beamed in by the mist, or something that went completely unmentioned or described or talked about. He's all of a sudden just there. The blue mist seems agitated, I guess, best you could tell. And at this point, Saru and Michael are both trying to sway it towards their uh, opinions on what should be done, because Saru's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and Michael tries to tell the Mists like, we're here about harmony, we're trying to stop this war, we're trying to fight someone who doesn't share this goal of harmony, and you're, you're basically your tech would help end that. And Saru's like, no, don't help them! If the Klingons find out that you helped them, they'll kill you! And the Mist seems to, whatever, think about this process, it. And then it uses the transmitter and contacts Discovery, and Discovery's like, all of a sudden just there, like, we've got your signal, we're beaming you up. And Sardar starts, he's basically pleading at this moment as the transporter effect is going in, like, please don't take me away. Like, oh, I'm crushed right now.
0: Yeah, and we saw a prolonged cut of the transmitter like it was doing something before they got beamed up, but I couldn't tell the difference between the transmitter's normal daily operation versus the allergens reacting to the pleas they had just heard.
1: Yeah, something was happening, and we cut away to the Discovery sickbay.
0: We see Tyler, Michael, and Saru all on their own various sickbeds, and Burnham approaches Saru. Culber says, make it quick. Burnham says thank you and she approaches Saru and she says like Saru that wasn't you down there and Saru's like everything I did down there I have been afraid my entire life my species is bred to be afraid and I am constantly afraid I never live a moment of my life without fear I'm always in fear until I reached that planet and the Povins took it away and for the first time in my life I was not afraid I disobeyed a direct order, I assaulted you, I could have killed you, Burnham, and that was not me under the influence, that was not being me manipulated, that was me.
1: I like, that's so heartbreaking. He yeah. finally found relief.
0: But he bought it so easily, and at what cost? I mean, this is a war effort that he was engaged in, and he was willing to abandon it for personal peace.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've seen so much of Saru, he's almost hit the secondary character in the series right behind burnham we've just seen so much development for him
0: for him to crumple like that was surprising and disappointing i thought he was made of sterner stuff especially after all the lectures he's given burnham
1: Uh, i think i i didn't see it as crumpling i just thought it was like finally like this is the first time he's known peace in his whole life and he was something he's wanted apparently his whole life and he finally got it and he didn't want to give it up i can i can understand that I
0: can't because he has always been about service. He's always been about obeying orders. And this is the first opportunity he had for peace, and he immediately bought it. Like, he never, it never occurred to him hey, let's get this transmitter set up so we can detect the cloaked Klingon ships, and then I will resign my commission and come back here. That way, everybody wins. No, it never occurred to him. He's like, nope, I don't give a crap about the war. My fear is finally gone, and that's the only thing that matters. So, kind of like how Burnham and Tyler were debating the needs of the many, the few, and the one. For Saru, it's all about the one, as long as that one is him.
1: I, I think it was deeper than that. I don't think it's... I think about. he didn't realize he could ever find this, and he finally did. I agree to disagree here.
0: I mean, I I know that he was looking for this his whole life, and I can't imagine what a relief it was to finally find it, but I think Saru's ability to self-sacrifice was extremely limited in this episode.
1: I, I can I can see. I can see what you mean. I just don't know if I agree.
0: That's it. Get <laughs> off my podcast. No, I'm just kidding.
1: So right after this, there's, this is where the, the two plots start mixing. Yes. Just after... Laurel was taking away on the sarcophagus ship. The sarcophagus ship receives an invitation. They, 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 we're getting a signal and it's an invitation. Cole was like, okay, let's go. I thought this was really weird. But I thought it I thought it was really weird that the Klingons are like, eh, there's mystery signals saying come on over. Let's just go. Like, okay.
0: Yeah, the Klingons are like, we're getting a message, it's an invitation to the planet Pavo, and Cole says, set course for Pavo. And at the same time, on the Discovery, Lorca is not that happy. He's like, Burnham, whatever you did, you screwed it up. The amplitude or frequency of this transmission has increased by like 10 to the 23rd power, and it's being broadcast on two communications bands, Starfleet and Klingon. And Burnham's like, it wasn't me, sir, it was the Pavans. This planet is not uninhabited, and they... Their whole f- thing is harmony. And so they want to bring humans and Klingons into harmony by bringing us physically together. And they think that by bringing us both to this planet, we'll achieve peace and harmony. But in reality, what it means is that Discovery is the last line of defense against the Klingons from either overtaking or destroying the province.
1: Yeah, and at that moment, the Ship of the Dead, they detected on long-range sensors. And Bernard was like, we have to protect them. We have to fight. And then it cuts away.
0: And that's the end of the episode. And then the ship blows up.
1: Yeah, and the ship blows up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that is the penultimate episode. It is a two-parter. It is to be concluded next week. And that is the end of this episode. Now, Sabriel, you have some other things that you picked up in this episode.
1: I just thought, Things that I thought were interesting. We discovered that the cyborg woman we've seen on the ship, her name is Ariam, and she must be third in command because earlier in the episode... Lorca leaves the bridge and gives her, gives her the con. Well, Saru's not there, so she's third in command. I thought that was just kind of neat to see because it hasn't been alluded to. I don't even think we can see her rank in the resolution of the screen.
0: So this is the character who almost looks like a cyborg with like the black and white face? Yeah. Okay.
1: I thought that was just neat to see that. And then uh, another bit of Star Trek trivia. Uh, people on the planet's surface are called a landing party instead of a way team. The difference there is like in uh, Enterprise and... Original series, they're called landing parties. By the time we get to TNG era, they're called away teams.
0: Oh, okay, so this is consistent with the era. Yeah. Interesting little piece of vocabulary there.
1: Yeah, I'm sure you'll find like one a mention here and there, but primarily that's the main nomenclature. And I also liked that this episode avoided the main character was possessed by something, and we discovered it was actually Saru. It was him
0: as I pointed out, that was really surprising to me. I really thought that he was being manipulated. We've seen that plenty of times before, you know, for example Deanna, Data, and O'Brien all get possessed by ghosts of dead people, and it's not actually them or we see Data being controlled by his father in a summons to go back to his planet, and it's Mm -hmm. not really him but in this time it is it's Saru. It's not a changeling it's not a hologram, it's not a possession, it's Saru being a total jerk. Again, yeah. my, my opinion.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Finally, uh this so one this one uh is kind of PG13. Um <laughs> someone asked Jason Isaacs on Twitter what the trouble on his desk is name, which we actually saw this episode for a brief moment, which we haven't seen for a bit.
0: Yo yeah, that totally caught my attention.
1: Yeah. He says it's on Twitter its name is Merkin. <laughs> and hold on, his actual tweet said it's called Merkin, and it's just below deck. What a Merkin is, is a wig that sex workers or prostitutes in the past would use to um, uh, put on their, their, their bits. What? Yeah. <laughs> what? I mean, I took his
0: tweet totally at face value.
1: Yeah, and no.
0: You're ruining Star
1: Trek, Sabriel. Why are you such a bad person? The hell? It's Jason Isaacs. No. Why is Jason Isaac such a bad person?
0: <laughs> I mean, it's bad enough that they're saying the F word, and now they're calling their tribbles Merkin? No! <laughs>
1: I thought oh. it was great. That was Jason Isaac's name for it, at least.
0: I mean, can yeah. can this podcast still have a clean tag, or do we need to make it explicit now? Uh, PG-13. Oh, uh. God. Okay.
1: Um, And finally, clean again. Uh, during Saru's moment when the mist goes into his head, he's having all these flashbacks. But also during that scene, a planet is shown that we've never seen before. And at first I thought maybe it was Pavo. But no, there are lights, like there's cities, like it's a civilized planet. A little bit later during the montage, the camera goes away from that planet and zooms out from the star system. And I thought that was just a little neat effect that had no mention. Nothing happened here. So like, I don't know if it was supposed to be something that will come into play later, Or if it was just showing, again, his journey of leaving home constantly afraid and just more of his past. So I thought it was kind of interesting and neat. And it may not have any relevance to what happens in the future, but it may have been more relevant to that moment or not. I don't know.
0: Now I'm picturing, like, young, shorter Saru just packing his bags and leaving home to go to Prey College and his parents (laughs) crying. Although his parents aren't really there because they've already been made into burgers and eaten. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of Saru, you know what I did this past week, since it was Halloween, was for the first time ever, I saw the movie Pan's Labyrinth. Is he in there? He plays one of the main characters. He actually plays two characters. He plays a satyr, I believe it was, you know, a goat type creature. Mm -hmm. And he also plays this really creepy pale man, uh, who is just almost like a corpse with no body, I don't think any genitalia. When it wakes up, There are these two eyeballs in a dish, and it grabs the eyeballs and inserts them into his palm, and then he holds his palms up where his eyes would be. So it's almost like jazz hands in front of his face, (laughs) except that's how he sees people. (laughs) And he has these incredibly long, sharp, barbaric teeth, and he's eating people, and it's that is the most terrifying scene in the entire movie.
1: Wow. Not for me.
0: And that's just one of the characters that Doug Jones played in that movie.
1: I don't want to see that. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> actually the movie is more of a war movie than it is a fantasy or horror movie i was surprised by that but it's also to my knowledge the first time i've seen doug jones in anything but discovery some people come to discovery intimately familiar with his lineage and having seen him in multiple roles for me i don't think i've seen anybody in Discovery except Jason Isaacs in anything, including Michael Burnham, who I never saw in The Walking Dead, because that's not a show I watch.
1: Yeah, I don't watch that either. So yeah, Jason Isaacs is the only character I've seen work before.
0: Yeah, and we can't exactly say that Lucius Malfoy was a main character in the Harry Potter
1: movies. (laughs) It's true. It's true.
0: And that's the only thing I've seen him in either. So to see a Discovery actor in another role after I've already gotten to know them as a member of Starfleet was kind of neat. Cool. But with all the makeup and stuff, it's hard to even see that it is Doug Jones. I'm sure. You know, going back to what I was saying about most Star Trek aliens being very human like in their characteristics and the like, that is actually an article I was reading about how amazing Doug Jones is. He actually doesn't just become another person in his roles, he becomes another thing. And that's not really something we see. Like, even Odo, he could literally be anything he wanted, and he was very anthropomorphic in most of his manifestations. You know, like, he was basically a gritty noir detective. Gotcha, gotcha. Whereas Saru, he's like, he is a creature from something else that we have not seen before. And that's kind of cool. That actor's ability, Doug Jones' ability to do that.
1: That's what I mean.
0: Yeah, if I can find that article, I'll put a link in the show notes at transporterlock.com.
1: And I am giving Ken... I did capture a screenshot of that planet. Ah. I was talking about it a moment ago. Uh, it's very hard to take pictures with CBS All Access because every time you pause it, it minimizes. So you have to... I had to just keep spamming the screenshot button, screenshot button until I got it.
0: I applaud your determination. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so despite all the things we learned in this episode and all the things we were surprised by, it's still my least favorite episode because I, I felt like... The character development was just sort of disjointed. I mean, it was the first time we saw a landing party, so that was kind of cool, or at least one of the first times. But I just didn't really feel like these are the characters that I've come to expect. Like, Stannis is being a jerk again, and as much as I was hoping he would be, it seemed kind of abrupt and uncalled for, especially when he took it out on Tilly. Saru was being a jerk. I don't understand if Cornwell is dead or not, and I don't understand what deceit Cole is referring to when he arrests Lorel. There's just a lot going on here that is unexpected or confusing, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, it didn't really resonate with me either. Uh-huh, a joke. Sound joke.
0: Uh-huh. Uh ha. <laughs> ah, make the resonance stop.
1: That's right. But I, like I said at the beginning of the episode, I think... If you're able to watch this and the next episode together, it'll go better.
0: I agree, Sabriel. We need to watch the next episode to put this into context, and hopefully things will make sense. And then we'll get a break from new episodes of Star Trek Discovery until January.
1: Yeah, we have some ideas what we're going to do, but if uh, you have any thoughts, feel free to send your feedback or suggestions to either of us on Twitter.
0: Yeah, or just email podcast at transporterlock.com, and we'll get that too. Excellent. So that is the end of Season 1, Episode 8. Uh, As Chekhov would say, si vis pacem (laughs) parabellum. Until next time, live long and prosper.
1: Kapla! If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on
0: iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at transporterlock.com. Uh Yuri Gagarin great. I'm glad you wrote that down cuz the name sounded familiar when they were saying it but I I couldn't figure out exactly what they were saying. Oh, now Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that I can see it I'm like, "Oh, Yuri Gagarin great."
1: Okay. Yeah, both of them die in a ball of fire. Sabriel! <laughs> I've been waiting to say that since I heard it <laughs> last night.
0: <laughs> Why are you such a bad person? It's the truth. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you realize that that cannot go in the show.
1: <laughs> no, I didn't intend it to be. <laughs>